following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I'm excited to um, preach the word to all of you today. Um, as you know, um, this year has been a sabbatical for, uh, for me, um, just an opportunity for me to rest for... Um, for some of the burdens and uh, the challenges of pastoral ministry, just to take take a year um, off, and so that's been. Um, I thank you for that. That's been uh, a real um, blessing to me and my family. We've really um, enjoyed the t- extra time that we've had together, and it's been a refreshment. And so, um, <clears throat> but in all of that refreshment, also it's been a blessing to be able to study the Word of God and um, bring the truth of God, um, to you today. And so, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to John 17. We'll be looking at John 17, and if you've been here any length of time, you know I'm on the 50-year plan for preaching through the book of John. All right, so uh, as I have opportunity, uh, we've been through John 13, 14, 15, 16, and we're in 17, just... um, taking more or less some of the highlights that we find in the book of John and, um, and studying them together. So in this passage that we have before us today, we see the Son of God, the only true God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the sent one from the Father, lifting his eyes to heaven. In all the strength of his deity and the tenderness of his sonship, requesting that he might be glorified so that in return he might glorify the Father. And in this glorious authority that he has been granted by the Father, he might give eternal life to all that the Father has given to him. In these opening lines to what has been aptly called the high priestly prayer, we see the aim of all humanity fulfilled in Jesus himself, to glorify the Father and to enjoy him forever. John 17, 1 through 5 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, not in our own merit, but by the merit of your Son. We see in this passage that he is truly glorious, having done all that had been planned before the foundation of the world. Only by his sacrifice are we found blameless in your sight. Only by his obedience are we obedient in you. Only by his faithfulness are we found faithful. Only by his revelation of you Father, are we able to be called your children? 
and experience eternal life in your presence. May we press on in our study today, not satisfied with knowing mere facts about you, but in faith. Seeing you for who you really are and believing. In doing so, may the longing of our heart be to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Amen. The entirety of John 17 is referred to as the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays this prayer immediately prior to being betrayed by Judas and arrested. In verses 6 through 26, as the Savior and mediator, Jesus pours out his soul to the Father on behalf of his people. He prays that they may live in unity and be one as he and the Father are one. He prays for their protection and perseverance and prays that they might have joy. He asks the Father that they may, that, that they may be with him and to see his glory and that the Father's love would be in them as it is in the Son. Although we could spec the ne- spend the next decade on what could be called the Caleb Coaston preaching calendar <laughs> in verses 6 through 26, uh, it is verses uh, 1 through 5 where we will spend our time today. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 begins with a phrase that ties it to the preceding context. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words. The words to which John is referring are the upper room teachings in chapter 13, chapters 13 through 16. The last big section of teaching that Jesus uh, lays out for his disciples prior to uh, going to the cross. He concludes this teaching in 1633 where he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. After those words, not in grief or sadness, but in the full readiness, willingness, and boldness as the plan of God from before the foundation of the world is being revealed, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The culmination of the plan of God from before the foundation of the world to reveal the true God in the person of Christ had come. The hour had come. The time is now. Despite his pending crucifixion, his focus is beyond even that. He turns his gaze on the glorification of himself, which results in glory to the Father. And he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. What an eternal perspective. In this statement, Jesus sees the cross, but also beyond it to all of eternity. He understands the end from the beginning. The true son of God, longing to be glorified, but not without purpose, that he may glorify the Father, as it says here, that the Son may glorify you. Some of the men in our community group have been going through um, 
catechisms. And so we've been working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, but very similar to that is the Westminster Catechism, the shorter Westminster Shorter Catechism. And some of you may be familiar with this, um, but question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the correct response follows, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end, or man's highest goal, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In this text, we see that goal perfectly completed in Jesus, that he might glorify the Father. Jesus is asking that he might be glorified. Okay, now that might seem a little odd to us, maybe, uh, especially if we didn't read it informed, that one, the one who is supposed to be the most humble would seek his own glory. But then again, we are surrounded by men and women, even ourselves and our flesh, who seek an unfounded glory. Glory that has no substance. Glory that has no weight. Glory that doesn't match because of an incorrect understanding. We see corporate giants touting their self-made achievements and professional athletes pounding their chest in pride as if by their own strength they were victorious. Both of these darkened in their understanding and neglecting the fact that they are merely mobile dust, sovereignly held together in every cell and fiber of their mind and being by someone outside of themselves. As Paul in the book of Colossians teaches us that we are a universe, that we are part of a universe held together by Jesus himself, holding the very atoms together, the stuff that makes things fit together and hold together and not just come apart. The question in the mind of scientists for all ages is how does this thing work? How did this thing get there? All kinds of theories have been tossed around but yet we know the answer right here in Colossians. The universe is held together by Jesus himself. So we must ask the first question, on what basis then does Jesus seek to be glorified? The first thing, the first basis is that Jesus rightly seeks to be glorified because his hour had come. In saying that his hour had come, the Son of God is pointing to a preordained time by by he and the Father, that this would come to pass. We are reminded that his earthly life and ministry, culminating at his death, resurrection, and ascension, was not a random series of events, but rather the agreed-upon, preordained plan of the Godhead before the creation of the universe. Jesus rightly seeks to be glorified because his hour had come. The time was right but not only was the time right, Jesus rightly seeks to be glorified because his work was accomplished. In verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, speaking to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So what does he mean by this? We see this answered throughout the book of John, where Jesus' purpose is displayed to make known or to reveal the truth about the Father and the Son to mankind so that they, might be, that they may believe and be saved. 
In his commentary on John 17, John Calvin described the glory of God in this way. He said, the glory of God is when we know what he is. Say it again, the glory of God is when we know what he is. Picture a scale in your mind. Glory is when the knowledge of who God is matches who he is. He receives glory as we understand who he is. And Jesus then giving the Father glory as he, both in what he teaches, in how he lives, and how he goes to the cross, paints the perfect picture of who God is to all of mankind. The glory of God is when we know what he is. In John 1, John describes Jesus as a light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. He describes the Son of God, the Word, as the one who was in the beginning with God. And being fully God, all things were made through him. John 1.18 says that he was not only the creator God, but he's the revealer of God. His mission was to reveal the truth about God and himself to man since the truth of one without the other is not truth, but a lie. The Pharisees trying to catch Jesus brought about their arguments and out of it their, their lies. And Jesus calls them, them on it that rejection of me as a son of God puts you in a position of lying like your father, the devil, who is full of lies. The truth is found in the fact not only that God exists, but that God had a son, Jesus Christ, who came to be the savior of the world. That is truth. The quest to make the truth known about God, who he was, what he was like, and how one comes to know him is the driving force of Jesus' earthly ministry. From the beginning of the gospel to the end, revealing the truth comes to the forefront. In John 18, 37, as Pilate is questioning Jesus right before the crucifixion, Pilate says, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this poor purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Also over in John 15, 12 through 17, Jesus has revealed the Father to his disciples. Verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. In these verses, we find the disciples, we find their designation shift from his servants to his friends on this basis, on the basis 
of his choice to reveal the truth of the Father to them, to expose them to the plan of God, to demonstrate the self-sacrificing love of God for those whom he had chosen. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus has indeed revealed the Father to mankind. He can step outside of time and in the prayer of John 17, he can see his work as being complete. From the end to the beginning, from the beginning to the end, from creation to his conception, from incarnation to proclamation, from crucifixion to his resurrection, from ascension to glorification, Jesus rightly seeks to be glorified because his work was accomplished. Sandwiched right between these two pleas for glorification of the Son is an explanation of the result of his accomplished work, which is eternal life for the people of God. John 17, 2, read it along with me. It says, since you have given him authority over all flesh, God has given him power. He has deemed the Son as the one who has all authority over, he has authority over all mankind. But for what purpose in this passage has that authority been given? We see it in the next phrase, to give eternal life to all the Father has given to him. Jesus has been the authority, he has been given authority over all mankind that he might bestow his grace and grant eternal life to those given to him by the Father. It is important for us to recognize that although Jesus' authority extends to all men, eternal life is limited to those to whom the Father has given to the Son. It says right in that verse, to give eternal life to all the Father has given to him. There are two correct responses to this truth. First, a response of rejoicing by those who believe, to those who by faith have come to know God in truth as revealed through his Son, Jesus Christ. Rejoice that you have been given to the Son by the Father. That he would do that for you. That he would give, that the, that the Father would give you to the Son. Rejoice that his blood has ransomed you for eternal life. The second correct response is to those who have up to this point rejected the true God and his son Jesus Christ. Repent and ask that God would reveal the truth of the gospel to you and that you might believe. Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To perish is the default. That means that the one who is currently rejecting the truth is perishing even now. He is hell-bent and awaiting judgment. But Jesus is calling men to believe in the truth and be saved. Just as the Samaritans in John 4 came to Jesus proclaiming because of the testimony of the woman at the well, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, speaking of the woman, for we have heard for ourselves and we know 
that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Jesus had revealed the truth to them about who God was, about who he was. And now that in that revelation, in faith, they believe. They've heard for themselves and they know that, this is, that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus has been given authority to give eternal life. That is clear. But what is eternal life? There's a few things. Eternal life is not merely living forever. A living forever in a sin-stained world is not bliss. Every year that goes by, I have an ever-increasing awareness that a long life in a sinful world is far from heaven. So every hair I lose or goes white, every pound I gain, but really, in all seriousness, every day stained by sin and the effects of sin in this world gives me a longing for something greater, something more. So, eternal life is not merely living forever. Eternal life is not nothingness. Okay, nowhere in Scripture do we find immortal souls being extinguished. Rather, we see that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. So rather than these two, eternal life is to know God himself. As this passage says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This passage shows that eternal life is to know the Father and the Son in truth. To be in the presence of the infinite God reveling in his greatness for all eternity. When I was a young person and a young believer, and periodically after that, I often thought about what I would do day after day for all eternity. And if you're like me or like me, this misperception may have led you to the conclusion that you might become bored or tired of perpetual life. Now, this conclusion doesn't negate the genuine desire uh, to be reconciled to God when you are confronted with your sin and your need of him. It doesn't diminish your, the faith that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But it does expose a misunderstanding of the greatness of God and the blessed, eternal, infinite task of knowing him. We'll go off script here for a minute and just... Um, you know, I think um, Will does this too. Will, Will builds, builds houses. Mark builds houses. I build houses. Um, when you're a couple weeks on the job, especially, I know Will's probably better trained than I am, but a couple weeks on the job, um, the first few weeks, months, houses that you build, um, you're like, man, this is, uh, this is great. You know, you're building houses, uh, people are moving into them, everything seems to be going fine. You know, there's a process in place that helps these things go well so that you don't have people's houses falling down on them. Obviously, there's inspections and things like that. However, um, as you build a few houses, you seem to, you could build the same amount of houses later on. But for some reason, even though it gets let's say, easier to build houses. At the same time, it gets harder to build houses. And the reason it gets harder is because you actually know what you're doing. And so, because you actually know what you're doing, you know the risk of doing it wrong. You know that you don't just, just because it went good on one house doesn't mean it's going to go good on every house. So, you're checking the little things. You're checking, you know, you're tired of fixing 
crooked walls. You're tired of fixing stuff that homeowners don't like. You're tired of fixing paint that gets messed up. You're tired of, um, you know, hopefully not, but a foundation that fails or, you know, you're tired of, uh, you know, the walls not being, you know, straight and true. You're tired of fixing all this stuff. And so what do you do? You, you put in the time and things get more difficult, more difficult, more difficult, you know, but because you, you know what you're doing. And I think, like, as we come to know who God is and as we spend the time to get to know who this God is, we realize what an amazing feat and what an eternal task and enjoyable task it will be to pursue and love this infinite God that we worship. And so may I challenge you that just as Chris has preached over the last few weeks of the grace of God and coming to him and desiring to have that fountain of grace, the waterfall of grace pour over you and saturate you and you're receiving the truth of God through his word, through your time in prayer, the spirit working through those things to make you more like Christ, receiving that grace it will only give you a greater desire and it will make that understanding come full-orbed that, that this is a wonderful task. This is a glorious etern- eternality that we get to know this loving, amazing, endless God. And now I'll find the spot that I was at in my notes. So this does expose a misunderstanding of the greatness of God and the blessed, eternal, infinite task of knowing him. The Apostle Paul speaks to this when he says in Philippians 3.12, not that I had already attained or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We will spend all eternity getting to know how in the world the God of the universe could give a care about us. We'll spend all eternity trying to figure out this boundless love of God that he would send his only son to die for you and to die for me, to die for those he's chosen to salvation. It's an endless pursuit. While studying, I came across this quote from D.A. Carson in his commentary on John. He says, and you might want to Write this one down. I might not have any good quotes to write down, but this is a good quote to write down. It says, Eternal life turns on nothing more and nothing less than the knowledge of the true God. Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. I'll read it again. Eternal life turns on nothing more and nothing less than the knowledge of the true God. Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. God, through Jesus, is giving us the greatest gift, and that's to know him. This was why he came. This is his accomplished task, to make known the Father to us and himself as our Savior. Having done this in himself, he has completed the task and thus has merited what is rightfully his. Glory 
as the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, having perfectly accomplished all that he and the Father set out to do, longs for the restoration of the united glory of the triune God. So what about us now? It's quite simple, really. Don't let the cares of this 75-year blip on the timeline of eternity keep your focus or you will entirely miss your purpose of being here. Don't let this life slip by without realizing the reason that you're here. Even as a Christian, don't get stuck with your mind set on earthly things. Things that, that will all fade away. James talks about them as a vapor. They appear, our life is a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it's gone. It vanishes away. It's like grass that is a match held to grass and it's gone in an instant. That smoke is just over. And that is our life, right? But eternity starts now. Eternity starts, eternal life starts at the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ. At that moment, you become, you come to know him. You come to know him and then are passed from death unto life. What is the chief end of man again? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief goal, our aim, what we should be working at every day is to know God and enjoy him. May we, as the Savior has done, make the truth of God known to the world and find joy in him that lasts forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we come to you just um, grateful that you would send your only son to this world that before the foundation of the world, you had in your divine plan to rescue sinful man, to send Jesus to, to the earth, born of a woman, to be 100% human, 100% God, the only one who could reveal to us your plan. That you, the loving Father and creator of heaven and earth, that you would be willing to give up your one and only son, strip him of glory that he might come to magnify your name and the truth about who you are and who he is. That he might go to the cross, that he might show us the love of the Father in his sacrifice and that he might be glorified. We praise you because this is, this is who you are and we have come to know you and in knowing you, we love you and so we magnify your name today. I pray that we wouldn't miss this life, that it wouldn't pass us by, 
that we wouldn't waste it on the trivial things of this life, on material possessions, on, on things that will not matter, but that we would be both consumed in knowing you and consumed in telling others about you so that they might know you, so that they might um, be um, unified with us for all eternity. We pray these things in your name. Amen.